Hello and welcome to How Many Geese. I'm Jack Baddams. And I'm Roddy Shaw. And if you're looking for a nature podcast that doesn't take itself too seriously, then we are the natural selection. On today's show, would you like to play How Many Species of Termite Does Each Continent Have, Higher or Lower? Why do our Hellenic friends hate the weasel so? <laughs> Couple questions straight out. Am I a Wendigo? I certainly hope not, for your sake. (laughs) You want to know the breast things in sliced bread? (laughs) Ducks. (laughs) So we've spoken about invasive species before on the podcast, from Pablo Escobar's cocaine hippos running amok in Colombia, to catastrophic introductions of cane toads, mongoose, cannibal snails, to other countries that could have done without them. Um, But I want to tell you about a new story that I saw of an invasive species that nearly happened right here in the UK that we had a very narrow escape from. So we're going to go back to 1994 yep. to a bungalow in Devon. And the owner has just called pest control to report a mysterious white ant that's been chomping through her conservatory. Oh. What do you think it is? Um, well, I think it's a termite. It is yeah. a termite. Now, I assume you're familiar with termites and their body of work. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> now, for anyone who doesn't know, termites, they're little sort of ant-esque creatures, uh, even though they're actually more closely related to cockroaches, that form large colonies. The most famous thing about termites is that some of them specialise in eating... Llamas. <laughs> <laughs> and these were the ferocious termite-eating llamas that oh set, set foot in Devon. They're no. going to decimate Devon's llama <laughs> populations. Wood. They like to eat wood. Now, obviously, we can see a bit of conflict arising here immediately if one of your main building materials since the dawn of time has been the favourite food of these insects. Now, in the USA, termites cause more than about $5 billion worth in damage and treatment costs each year. And in Australia, they've cut off the electricity after chewing through power lines. So Australia has wooden power lines. You would have thought if anywhere in the world was going to make their power lines, make them out of adamantium or something, (laughs) it would be Australia. But I hadn't really thought about the fact that we don't have termites here in the UK. Obviously, I knew that we didn't, but I never really thought about the fact that termites aren't really anything that we have to deal with. And in fact, Europe as a whole is pretty low on its termite representation. Now, off the back of the critically acclaimed game Norwegian Animal Scavenger Bingo, I've got a new game, which is, would you like to play how many species of termite does each continent have, higher or lower? Yes. Yes. Oh, my God. Play along at home, listener. So I need you to give me, uh, just, just give me a continent. And I'll tell you how many termites it has. I didn't realise you got my application. Um, <laughs> I was going to be a real Don't dingo. say. And, yeah. uh, good. Antarctica. The answer is zero. zero. Yeah. Uh, Africa. Africa. Yeah. So we're starting at Africa. Africa has roughly a thousand species of termite. So do you think, let's go, South America has more or less? More. Quite substantially less. Oh. 400 species wow. of, so africa i'll tell you is the highest a right. thousand okay. species of termite <laughs> in africa is the highest so on this game of termite continent higher or lower bingo i could just go lower with everything for, well no because now i've got a note okay. from south america exactly so now we play off of south america which is 400 let's go for australia higher lower 
But only by 40. So they're on 316 species of termites. I'm so bad at (laughs) termite continent number bingo. Asia. So we're playing off 360. Higher. Higher, it's 435. But not by much. So we've got Africa that's on its own on 1,000. Asia's 435. South America, 400. Australia, 360. So now from Asia, North America. 435 to North America, lower. Lower. We're at 50. Wow. So North America's got a lot less. And finally, Europe. Less. 10. Wow. There's only 10 species of termite. Why do we suck at termites? In uh, in Europe. I can only assume, looking at this, that it's to do with heat and tropics and insect diversity and all that sort of Mm. stuff. But North America and Europe have... 50 and 10 species respectively. So there are no native termites in the UK at all. But going back to that Devon bungalow, scientists were immediately alarmed by the fact that termites were here Mm. and were eating through a house of this person in in Devon. Mm. So they went out and they identified that the white ants chewing through the conservatory were in fact the Mediterranean termite, Reticulotermes gracii. Now, although they were in de- identified in 1994 when they were reported, there are reports that gardeners had seen white ants in that location for 70 years and that a greenhouse had previously needed replacing. It's thought that they could have been brought in by a bit of wood or soil on an exotic plant, and a further investigation revealed a colony of millions of subterranean termites, which is the first and only record on British soil. Turns out termites don't like Britain for lots of reasons. It's too wet. But this particular bungalow had basically been built on like termite nirvana. It was the most (laughs) perfect place that a termite could build a colony in the UK because it was built on light, well-draining sandy soil where lots of pine trees were growing. Pine trees are essentially like termite crack. Like they just live for it. This species of termite, its favorite food source is, is pine trees. Guess what the house was built out of? Pine trees. Pine trees. Yeah. So they were... Not even through a lumber mill, just straight pine (laughs) trees. Straight pine. So they were having... The termites were having the best time ever. And this became of key interest to the UK government because the ramifications of termites spreading throughout the UK would be disastrous. Like, imagine trying to buy a house. In France, you have to prove that your house is completely termite-free before you're allowed to sell it. Uh, And because of climate change, making particularly the southern UK a lot warmer, these Mediterranean termites, the fear was, would just be able to spread all along southern UK, termites infesting lots of people's houses. So, in 1998, the UK's first termite eradication programme was set up. They established that the termites were in an area of about 110 metres wide, around two bungalows, and 10 metres down into the soil. So we had um, species bingo higher or lower. Yep. Does every do all termites eat wood? No. Right. No. no so, no. what do the ones that don't eat wood eat? Uh, well, a lot of them eat other vegetation, right? Another like rotting vegetation, leaves, grasses, things like that. But the only ones we ever hear about are, of course, the famous wood eating. termites. Just wondering if it had been a non wood eating termite, would it have still? cause such panic do like the ones that don't eat wood eat livestock yeah (laughs) (laughs) you know and it would have been like fuck the houses are good but jesus the cattle (laughs) i imagine apart from the llama eating yeah the llama eating termites famously of of devon but i think if another species of termite turn up because look we're getting new species all the time Mm. turning up 
uh, especially accidental insects that are coming in on plants and things like that. And unless they are causing any overt, or generally economic damage, yeah. that's obviously when we start paying attention. Yeah. I think they'd have probably just been left to their own devices. Mm. I mean, these hadn't been identified for 70 years wow. and they were hiding here in the soil and had built up a colony of millions, like I say, 10 metres deep down into the soil. 10 I mean, metres? Yeah. That's... They were 10 metres down. When they cored into the soil, they found termites 10 metres down into the soil. That's like a three-storey building. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Jesus. So the difference between European termites and the termites that we immediately think of, which are the ones in those big, yeah. you know, you think of the anteaters tearing open yeah. the termite nests and licking them all up. Um, but termites in Europe don't build big termite mounds. Uh, they don't form one massive centralised colony that you can eradicate easily. They spread throughout the soil and wood, and you'd only need a tiny reserve of termites in a damp piece of timber in the ground, half the size of a matchbox, for the million-strong colony to come back from. Oh, no. That's challenging. So the task, <laughs> the task facing the UK's first and only termite eradication programme was to completely eradicate millions of termites from an area of 110 metres wide, 10 metres down into the soil, and get rid of every trace of them, because even something half the size of a matchbox could cause this colony to spring back. Right. As with all things, mm -hmm. this needs Michael Bay. <laughs> Have you seen Armageddon? Uh, th that's the one. Where, oh, what's the famous like? There's the. It's got like the worst tagline of any film ever, and someone was paid like millions of dollars to write it, and it's just like let's kick some asteroid ass or something like that. Probably it's probably just let's kick some asteroid. <laughs> yeah, right. I, that would be better. That's yeah. what it should have been, but it's not as clever as that. Um. So in that asteroid heading for earth and in his infinite and divine wisdom michael bay's hung the film's premise around instead of sending teaching space people how to drill uh -huh. because they had to they the asteroids coming for earth and they realize they need to blow it up right yeah. so they need to get a crew out there drill into it put a bomb in the asteroid blow it up earth is going to be safe yeah instead of going to astronauts and saying this is how you work a big drill yeah. the whole film hangs around getting a drilling team and teaching them how to do space flight in about a four-week <laughs> program okay it's phenomenal yeah i think we can agree with everything you're saying here about the UK suddenly need to pull together some kind of crack team to excavate this area of land. Yep. I'm putting Michael Bay montage-esque situation in my head. Get the drillers in. Where they've gone out to an oil drill and they've gone, listen, we could get scientists involved and teach them how to dig, but instead we need you and some coal miners from Siberia to come together and we're going to teach you about termite biology and you are going to save Devon. <laughs> that would have been a much better story. Yeah. Um, Right, let's spare a thought for these poor homeowners. So there's two bungalows side by side, which are at the, the ground zero of this termite invasion. They are banned from doing pretty much any home improvement activities or removing any wood or soil from the site because everyone's so worried about these termites spreading to a new area. In 2012, one of the owners applied to demolish the house and start again from scratch. They wanted to burn the house down and just rebuild it again, thinking that that might get rid of the termites. Oh, I th just like as a hobby. No, <laughs> no just, just to get rid of the termites. Um, but that was refused because 
well, one, the fact that they live in the soil meant it would have had not much effect. They weren't living in the wood. Uh, and two, moving any soil off the site, you know, all that sort of stuff. They didn't want to just move any material away from that site in case it was had got enough termites on to start a colony elsewhere. This, by most experts' counts, wasn't supposed to work. It had never worked before on these kind of termites, eradicating a colony like this, and the experts thought that the termites were here to stay. But such was the danger of the termites spreading that successive UK governments, over a period of what now approaching 20 years, had funded this programme. So this is something something that's important enough for Labour and Conservatives to fund over 20 years, just shows you sort of how, how serious they took this threat. So they had no choice but to try and eradicate the termites. Wooden stakes of old pine were driven down into the gardens of the properties to monitor for any signs of the termites chewing them, whilst a hyper-intelligent insecticide that would stop termites reaching maturity and reproducing was put into action. That's all I know about that insecticide, but it sounds like something from Michael Bay's films. Yes, that's going to be put inside the Chinese fireworks <laughs> that the Siberian coal miners shoot into the, the colony. Do termites... Can any termite? Beca- do they have a queen? They must have. A- termites have a yeah. queen. Yeah. I know that. Yeah, yeah. But then you said that even if it was like half a matchbox, they could come back. Yeah. So then, if the queen isn't in the matchbox, can any termite then become, become a the queen? Like I don't know. That's in good- chess, if the termite gets to the other side of the board, does it then become a queen? That's a good point. They must be more robust than that because they did bounce back because. As we went into the 2000s, there had been no sightings of termites for nine years. Can you give me... When did they... 1994? So 1994, they were spotted. Yeah. 1998, the termite eradication program was set up. Yeah. Then, well into the 2000s, there'd been no sightings of termites for nine years. And they were like, great, we've solved it. The termites are gone. Until... Deep down in the soil, they started seeing some little antenna emerging and uh, the program had to be extended and the, the, the whole sort of eradication program started again. It's now been 10 years since the last sighting of the termites and the Saunton colony has now been declared eradicated, making it a world first. And it was only announced, it's like December 2021 or something like that. It's a very, very recent thing that they finally said, we think we've beaten the termites. And it was just the one colony? It was just the one colony spread across this giant site. I don't know whether they'd I don't know whether they'd be fragmented into other little colonies at that point, but it was basically just within this 110 meter wide, 10 meter down stretch of land underneath these bungalows that these termites. I mean, God, can you imagine owning a house in that like the tiniest bit of the UK, 110 meters? That's not even like a whole street. Yeah, you know. Imagine like living, yeah, just like down the road. The other 111 metres away. Well, the thing was, <laughs> these termites were reported in 94. Yeah. But there's reports that there were white ants in the garden going back 70 years. Yeah. All it takes is for somebody back in the 80s, 70s yeah. to have dug a plant up. Yeah. Or maybe a big tree or a shrub. Oh, no. Taken it no. to no. Cornwall or Dorset. No. And... These termites are really hard to spot unless anyone's sort of switched on or unless they're causing any sort of serious damage, obviously, to, to houses. They could still be out there. Oh, man, I'm not going to be able to sleep. The termites could be out there. Although, this story is a pretty good example of where we've done something right and they've taken it as serious as it needed to be. Because as far as we are aware, the termites have been eradicated from the UK and this non-native species 
hasn't been able to breach our defences. At the same time, though, I mean, Britain is terribly fragmented today, yeah. politically, socially, <laughs> economically. Environmentally. Environmentally. And you saying that when they were discovered, they brought Labour and the Tories together <laughs> in a united battle against the termites. Maybe we do need that. I, yeah, let's know. just release it. Let's go over to France. Turn Get a load in a box. And just come back here, yeah. dust them about the place and come together in harmony and solve the termite yeah. problem. Yeah. Now, say, Jack, I was a man who needed a very big hole dug. Right. And I couldn't afford it. Yeah. Can I, who do I call <laughs> to say I've seen a white ant? Well, this person, it's just recorded that they called pest control. Is it Defra? So, Defra would definitely want to hear about it. Do I speak to Defra? You could speak to Defra. Okay. They'll come out, they'll dig you a hole, and then they'll also sink hundreds of stands of aged pine into your garden but aesthetically what does that look like is that like something you'd see at the chelsea flower show or could i exhibit my i think it looks more like something you'd see on the normandy beaches to stop to stop the allies how landing. big are these termites <laughs> that were using anti-tank <laughs> apparatus i think it would look like those dragon's teeth like lined up across the probably i wonder if there was any signage or any sort of like here there be termites beware yeah here be termites yeah with this species of termite you said it's mediterranean you said it's southern yeah what i'm saying is if it had gotten out of control yeah would we have only lost devon <laughs> I think Devon and, Devon and Cornwall, <laughs> they're gone. They're gone. That's just sawdust in the sea. That, that, yeah. that is essentially, you know, that is the Mediterranean in the UK. Um, so What's they're next? gone. Well, then it's Dorset. Yeah. They'd go across to Dorset. And then Hampshire? Maybe. We might the New Forest. If they get in the New Forest. So we're losing. The Southwest. Cornwall, Devon, the New Forest. Bournemouth is gone. Bournemouth's gone. I think up to Bristol. Maybe I, up to Bristol. I used to live in Bristol. It got pretty Mediterranean there. Okay, Bristol, and then across to. I don't know if yeah. they'd get to London. I reckon London you'd get them in London. Hot. I mean, they'd probably go along the coast. They'd reach Brighton. They'd get on a train, and then when you're in London, you've got the urban microclimate. Yeah. A lot of concrete, though. Not a lot of oh. timber, pine trees, frame, aged pine, much aged pine, aged pine in the city. No. Um, so yeah, kind of Bristol to London, we're drawing a line, I think. Yeah. And everything south of there is just dust in the channel. Cut them loose. Yeah. Well, I mean for what five ten years before it gets hotter and then and then you've lost norfolk the march of the termites yeah. continues birmingham's gone leicester we just build a wall at scotland yeah. <laughs> hadrian's wall take Hadrian, two yeah exactly <laughs> but sink it 10 meters down yeah. into the ground instead yeah and make it out of metal hadrian's iron fence i wanted to give the final word to damien mcbride who's the special advisor to Shadow Foreign Secretary Emily Thornbury, and he drew attention to this on Twitter. He thought that the team from the Termite Eradication Programme deserved honours for their work. What's the moral of the story, he asked? You can make up your own mind, but for me, this is public service in its finest form, unseen, largely unknown, and rarely heralded, but done with selfless dedication year after year simply because of what would happen to the rest of us if it wasn't. Cue anthem. So... There we go. That's the the tale of the Saunton termites and how we all avoided, hopefully, fingers crossed, a very termite bump in the road whenever it came to selling a house or buying a house or building pretty much anything made out of wood. So that's the termites. Yep. Narrow escape from the termites. Mm. But it's not just those. So mm. some other animals that we also had narrow escapes from. This is sort of like a look what you could have had because we like talking about exotic animals in places that they shouldn't be. Yep. So we'll start with, of course, 
birds. Yep. Now, you're familiar with ringneck parakeets. Yep. You're from London. Of course you're very familiar with ringneck parakeets. Yep. They're everywhere, not just in London, but now breeding in Sheffield, Coventry, Liverpool, all over the place. As of 2016, the British Trust for Ornithology estimated that there was around 12,000 breeding pairs of parakeets. So you can bet that's gone up since then. So they're pretty much here to stay. Ringneck parakeets aren't going anywhere. What you might not be aware of is the monk parakeet, which was another species of parakeet. And deeply pious. <laughs> they have no feathers on the top of their head. They just a ring of feathers around the back. <laughs> They're also known as Quaker parakeets. Oh. They're smaller than ringneck parakeets, and they've got like a white front with, okay. a green, with a green back. And they're native to certain areas of South America, Yep. but can now be found in... Deep breath... Spain, Portugal, the Azores, Madeira, the Balearic Islands, Gibraltar, France, Corsica, Malta, Cyprus, Sardinia, Italy, Greece, Belgium, Canada, Brazil, Mexico, Chile, Israel, Bermuda, Bahamas, the United States, the Cayman Islands, Puerto Rico, Easter Island, South Korea, Singapore, and Japan. Some of those are closer together than others. Yeah. Some of those are closer to us than others. Yeah. Some of those are incredibly surprising. Yeah. <laughs> Easter Island. Yeah, that's what I was... I'm like, Portugal to Spain to France to Belgium or whatever. That's a clear line. Nowhere you listed is near Easter Island. No. <laughs> I don't think anywhere you could list is near yeah. Easter Island. Yeah. I've seen them in Barcelona and they're just everywhere. It's like the ringneck parakeets yeah. in London. The, the monk parakeets are everywhere. Now, in 1993, they set up home in Boreham Wood in Hertfordshire. Mm -hmm. And by 2011, there were thought to be up to about 150 of them with a decent-sized colony in East London's Isle of Dogs. Yep. Now, why were people so worried about the monk parakeets being established? With the termites, it's obvious. They're going to eat your house. With the monk parakeets... They eat cars. (laughs) (laughs) Their favourite food is dog. Yeah. Monk parakeet will go through a rubber tyre in four (laughs) seconds. The actual problem with monk parakeets is that they're pretty unique amongst the parrot family in that they build massive communal nests. Very similar to, you know, those giant weaver bird nests in Africa that will take over an entire acacia tree and they'll have loads of little entrances. Monk parakeets do that. Question. Yeah. Maybe that's why they're called monk parakeets because it's like a monastery. Continue. It could well be, yeah. No one's here to tell us that it's (laughs) wrong. Tell us otherwise. There's only two of us. Motion passed. (laughs) There we go. So... They build these huge nests, and they build them in places you wouldn't necessarily want them to build them. They build them on telegraph poles in the UK. They built one on a mobile phone mast, mm-hmm. and if cabinet they, offices. <laughs> if they, <laughs> we've lost Defra to the monk parakeets. <laughs> just build it on the, what the what's like the big BT tower, and just oh, like yeah. knock out all communications. <laughs> yeah. Maybe that's what they're doing. So. They build these massive nests. They build them on structures that we don't want them to build on, structures that are dangerous for them to build on. Mm -hmm. Because if these nests get sodden with water, they become incredibly heavy. Or if they dry out and they're on an electricity pylon, they can catch fire. Great. That bit of behavior, that nesting behavior, basically spelt the end for them. And the decision was made that while there was only about 150 birds rather than waiting for them to get established it was decided that they would be eradicated and birds were captured eggs were taken nests removed until the monk parakeet is no longer so the monk parakeet is a bit like the termite although the removal of it was far easier was something else that we could have had but didn't hang on but there's also another bird that has controversially undergone or is actually still undergoing the fate of the monk parakeet there's Mm -hmm. a bird out there 
in the UK countryside that is being mercilessly hunted. Mercilessly hunted. <laughs> mercilessly hunted. <laughs> mercilessly hunted. <laughs> Please save me. Okay. <laughs> mercilessly hunted by deathless snipers. Oh. And it's this bird. I'm going to show it to you now, Roddy. It's called the Ruddy Duck. I haven't looked. Okay. Fine. And I want you to describe what that looks like. Um, classic duck in frame. Um, it's got a rust-coloured brown body up to the chin. Then it's got a kind of white cheek and lower bit of the face with a black top and round and a bright, bright, bright blue bill. Mm. Lovely blue bill. Yeah. They're quite nice. They're pretty nice-looking things. Yep. They're, they're quite colourful, like you've said. Really gingery, rusty red body yep. and then white cheeks and uh, a bright blue beak. Name, of course, short for the Ruderick duck. <laughs> These, I remember seeing these when I was younger, not too far from here in Nottinghamshire, but these are native to North America. And they were brought over to the UK by famed ornithologist and conservationist, Sir Peter Scott. Have you ever heard of Sir Peter Scott? No, as you were coming close to famed ornithologist, I thought it would be the American guy with the book again. But um, uh, Audubon, no. Yep, no. No, but Peter Scott, we could talk about him for ages because he's a really interesting chap. He's the only child of Robert Falcon Scott, also known as Scott of the Antarctic. Oh. Who was the person who uh, died on one of his trips? He was there with Lawrence Oates, who wow. famously said, I'm going for a walk, I may be some time. In fact, we actually know that Oates said that because Scott wrote it down in a book before he died. So, so Peter Scott is the son of him, Scott of the Antarctic. Anyway, Peter Scott was a really keen conservationist. He helped set up the WWF. The was world. his middle name Falcon as well? Uh, no, but he had a son called Falcon. Oh, damn, that's cool. So he helped set up the WWF. He designed the panda logo. He was the person who invented oh, wow. it, Sir Peter Scott. And he also set up the Wildfowl and Wetland Trust here in the UK. Right, um, take a day off. Which, yeah, he's one of those like <laughs> massive overachievers. Yeah. That you're just like, All right. Um, well, I mean, his dad went to like Anton. You know, his <laughs> bar's, bar's pretty high. His dad's probably like, God, you just made a club <laughs> for ducks. You made a, a duck club. Yeah, <laughs> Jesus Christ. Why don't you actually go somewhere instead of just making a duck club? Drawing pandas. (laughs) Yeah, he's just sat there. Dad, I'm going to create, like, the biggest conservation organisation in the world. Yeah, other people are climbing mountains. (laughs) You're just hanging out with swan nerds (laughs) near a swamp. Well, he spent his whole life hanging around with swan nerds and has, as his legacy, has left perhaps the biggest group for swan and duck nerds, the Wildfowl and Wetland Trust, um, which now has reserves across the UK, but started at Slimbridge in Gloucestershire. Mm -hmm. Now, Slimbridge, as well as being a nature reserve, for lots of wild birds, a really good nature reserve, um, was also home to a large collection of exotic waterfowl because Peter Scott liked to collect waterfowl from around the world. Now it's home to the biggest exotic collection of waterfowl anywhere in the world. Um, mm. And he would take rare species to breed them in captivity and also non-rare species just because he liked collecting them. And in 1948, he brought three pairs of ruddy ducks over to Slimbridge and started breeding them in the enclosures. The plan was to pinion them which is where you essentially, you, you stop them from flying. And it's what you sort of oh, you clip. Clip the wings. Yeah, but it's not clipping the feathers. It's like actually removing some of the skin Ooh. where those feathers would grow out of so that you don't have to clip the wings every year. Because birds molt every year. They replace their feathers every year. So if you're just clipping the feathers, you'd need to go in and clip them every year. Mm. Pinioning is a way where you basically remove the, the area of skin where the flight feathers would grow from. Ooh. Yeah, it's pretty... It's one of those things that you're like, do we still do we still do that? Yeah. Um, so the plan was to pinion. You have to get the birds when they're quite young before you pinion them. Um, but some of them escaped, basically. 
they didn't get to pinioning them fast enough. They flew over the fences. Ruddy ducks are now in the UK. Fast forward to 2005, and there were around 4,500 on the loose in the UK. They looked great. Lots of birders really like them. I enjoyed seeing them. They do this funny little dance when they're mating. They're brightly coloured. They're, they're, they're great. So what's the problem? It's a duck. It's not going to eat through your house. It's not going to build a nest on a pylon. Yeah. Why are we getting to the stage where the problem is? They hate rail infrastructure. <laughs> <laughs> Don't we all hate rail infrastructure? They we can all sympathise with the rail. Go head first <laughs> into oncoming LNER pendolinos. <laughs> I don't even know if pen- LNER has pendolinos. I don't even know what pendolino is. Pendolino is a really fast train. It's the fastest train in the UK, I think. And a ruddy duck can go faster than it. Yeah. <laughs> they actually they actually play a very different game with rail infrastructure in that they exclusively go after train drivers. And just <laughs> they realise that they can't take out the train itself. But if they take out the humans around the train, it will grind rail infrastructure to a halt. That blue beak just punches straight through the windscreen. Ah, oh, yeah. Between the eyes yeah. of the train driver. Unsuspecting train driver. The insurance payouts that Virgin <laughs> Rail has to do to spouses of rail drivers who have just been pierced by ruddy ducks travelling 200 miles an hour through the British countryside. They all dread the moment when there's a knock at the door. You open it, there's someone from Virgin Rail just holding their hat against yeah. their chest going, the ruddy ducks. With, with someone from the Wetland Trust next to them for counselling purposes. <laughs> They're like, I knew this day would come. I told him to get out of the game. <laughs> Ever since Harry got taken out by a moorhen. <laughs> anyway, believe it or not, that was not the problem. Damn. The problem so wasn't close. <laughs> the problem wasn't in fact here, but it was in Spain. In Spain, there's a closely related but entirely native and crucially very endangered white-headed duck. The Rodrigo duck. The, the, yeah, exactly. The Rodrigo duck. Yeah. So the white-headed duck lives in Spain, and ruddy ducks began turning up in Europe, made their way to Spain, and started to interbreed with the much rarer white-headed duck. I mean, they're basically British if they're doing that. And then, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All focused around Benidorm. Yeah. <laughs> the feral birds in Britain were believed to be the source population yep. of these birds going to Europe. Yep. So without the large feral population that we'd got in Britain, the S- Spanish white-headed ducks wouldn't be at risk of being essentially bred out of existence, hybridising them until until they're all gone. So the decision was essentially made to turn off the tap of the source population here in Europe, which is a nice way of saying total annihilation of the, run- <laughs> of the ruddy duck. And this was, and still is, massively controversial. Like, it, it's been hugely successful, more than a million pounds have been spent on it, but we're now likely down to about 10 birds left in the UK. It's around that sort of number. And the costs of mopping up the last few is about 3,000 per bird. But if birders see them, it's like a proper birdie thing to just not tell anyone about it. Like you just don't release the news because Ooh. if you tweet about it, if you let certain people know, it will find its way back to DEFRA. So there was one that turned up on a lake somewhere in Cheshire, I think only a couple of months ago. The news got out the next day that the birders went, there were three people with guns surrounding the lake waiting for this one ruddy duck to come out. Wow. Like they're seriously like finishing the job because if we just leave 10 and they all get together, we just, you know, further down the line, we have the whole problem again. So they're serious about finishing this job of wiping out the last few ruddy ducks. Do you think there's one like grizzled agent in (laughs) DEFRA? 
Who is that? <laughs> get those last ten. He like really respects them though. Yeah, he's like he, he doesn't hate them. He's just like my old my old nemesis. Exactly. He sees a tweet and he's like, <laughs> this time. <laughs> he knows them all individually now. One last he's got ride. like the ten like mapped on his wall. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's like the, it's a the, just... He knows where eight of them are. It's ten with just a question mark and a piece of string waiting to be pinned. It's somewhere. like the deck of cards that they had in <laughs> for the for the terrorists in Afghanistan. You know, like yeah. they, they had those. That's what he's got for really ducks. Defra's most wanted. <laughs> Duck. <laughs> Duck. Goose. Yeah. Hey. <laughs> Now, so, there's two birds that we had a brief flirtation with, the monk parakeet and the ruddy duck. Uh, And I just want to finish now with uh, some honourable mentions to some mammals that have flirted with becoming permanent residents here. Because I have a book, The Excellent Britain's Mammals, A Field Guide to Mammals of Britain and Ireland. And in the back of it is a bit entitled Introduced Ephemerals. So it has your normal species that you would encounter in Britain and Europe and at the back it has this little thoroughly corporeal you can touch them hold them see them squeeze them and then the ephemeral mammals which are much more conceptual intangible yeah. and yeah, ethereal yeah the idea of a giraffe <laughs> but this bit is this bit this bit of the book is 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 really well it's wild because these are species that have set up small colonies in the UK in the past and have eventually died out naturally or been eradicated so things like the black-tailed prairie dog which set up a few colonies, some of them quite successfully, like on the Isle of Wight and in Northern Ireland. But they're now, remember, all these Mm. are are gone. Siberian chipmunk. Mm. Several small colonies have been found in Britain before being swiftly eradicated. Imagine being the person to go out and be like, what's today's target, boss? Chipmunks. (laughs) Just see, it's the most wholesome little creature. (laughs) And you're just like loading up, like a montage of you like loading assault rifles and things like that to go and annihilate a colony of chipmunks. In that DEFRA office as well, it's like a duck's on the menu. No, (laughs) chipmunks. It's a day off from the dog boys. (laughs) There's a load of chipmunks in Brighton that need urgent attention. (laughs) Similar to a chipmunk, Mongolian gerbils. A colony lived in for three years on the Isle of Wight. Hmm. Golden hamsters. Occasionally established urban or suburban populations in outhouses and sheds with a population living in North London for a few years in the 80s. And house prices, they just... <laughs> <laughs> they, they've since moved to Sheffield. Yeah. <laughs> this one's a fun one. Striped skunk was often kept as a pet until in 2007 it became illegal to remove the scent glands. Individuals were released and a small population became established in the Forest of Dean, where, tantalisingly it says... It may still persist. Striped skunks on the loose in the Forest of Dean. Huh. Well, is it still legal to have a pet skunk? Uh, yeah. Huh. But it, you you have to risk it spraying you. Yeah. But why don't they just make having the skunk illegal? Why? It seems like an odd thing that like you can have one. Because it was an animal. It, will... it was an animal rights thing. It was. It no, was... I get that. But I'm saying the animal rights thing is they're getting rid of the scent glands. Yep. No one's going to want a skunk that has the scent glands. So I'm saying, why did they choose to make taking the scent glands out illegal and not just, and not just skunks. outlaw skunks in general? Well, I mean, you say that, though, but then people people want to keep venomous snakes that could kill them. So people just like keeping exotic things. I think. People yeah, like keeping- yeah, but I think there's more of like a kind of, you know, 
leather and biker thrill in having a venomous snake than just having a very that's unpleasant cool. afternoon and even to have a bath in beans or whatever it is to get rid of the snake. Yeah, okay, that's fair. You know. Next, the Asian short-clawed otter. This is the otter that you see in zoos all the time. Uh, and this has escaped and bred in the wild with a number of reports from Oxford in the early 80s. Next one's a good one. Himalayan porcupine. In the late 70s, a small population became established in Devon and lived for over a decade. Imagine if all these things were still here. Imagine if we still had Siberian chipmunks, hamsters, skunks, Himalayan porcupines. Have they all been eradicated because of, like, DEFRA's efforts? Like, those porcupines no. for 10 years, some of them just die out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. So generally, especially especially the larger the animal, then if you've got something small like a termite, it can reproduce very, very quickly. But the yeah, larger, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, it's more difficult for them to spread. Um, so for things like the porcupine, they persisted for over a decade. Over time, they would have just died out. Um, they would have unlikely to ever really become fully established if these animals only um come from a handful too because of genetic bottlenecks mm. and all that they'd all be inbred and cross-eyed and all that sort of stuff the next one would be a particularly bad one this is raccoons yeah now raccoons are found now in many parts of europe they're just part of like the urban ecology mm. just as much as a fox is if you go to berlin madrid it's just raccoons just oh. going through your bins like sleeping in your loft that sort of stuff. Um, and escaped individuals have been recorded in Britain before with at least one documented case of breeding. These are generalist animals that would each eat pretty much everything. So there's a worry that if they got into the ecosystem, they could really cause some damage. Mm. In the Scottish Highlands in 2016, in the remote Scottish Highlands, where a camera trap had been set to record wildcats, a raccoon comes wandering through the, the thing well, no and is fiddling with the, the bait that they've set out. In 2016. Because of the camera, like, <laughs> focusing it, <laughs> yeah. you know, like, changing the lighting, getting it a bit more arty. And then finally, and perhaps the biggest, the the animal that was at its biggest population before we took it out. Manatees. Bar- <laughs> barring the termites, which were in their millions, is, are you familiar with a koipu or a nutria? They've got two names. Yeah, but also not really. It's like a beavery watery rodent yeah. thing isn't yeah. it yeah. So basically a big old rod- rodent can get to 10 kilograms that's the big. big ones and be with its tail up to about a meter long that's like a spaniel yeah they're yeah. like super sized water voles or slightly smaller beavers yeah basically uh semi-aquatic south american rodent that escaped from fur farms in the 1930s and began breeding very quickly unsuccessfully tried to eradicate it in the 40s by the 50s it was causing extensive damage to agriculture by eating crops and tunneling into riverside banks the numbers reached about 200,000 across the uk like Hmm. they were fully fully here yeah like fully taken over but thanks to a huge effort that lasted decades the last nutria was caught from uk wetlands in 1989 so pretty recently yeah, that we avoided those, but we could live. We could live in a very different world if we'd got termites and ruddy ducks and yeah. monk parakeets, knee deep in porcupines, dodging <laughs> burning parakeet nests, while yeah. termites turn everything to dust and koipus clog up the waterways. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, but with the... not a rail inspector to be seen. <laughs> this episode has wonderfully been sponsored by trees for cities trees for cities is a uk charity working to plant trees not just in towns and cities around the uk but internationally as well the only charity in the uk to do so there's some crazy statistic out there that like 80 percent of the world's population are expected to live in cities by 2050 
something bonkers about how much more urbanized the world is getting and with that we do need lovely lovely green spaces we know this from being locked in our houses for two years and everyone going mad and needing somewhere to go outside and breathe so as we all know trees give us wonderful oxygen i don't know how much of a sales pitch trees need (laughs) but if anything is everyone's pretty sold on it's trees exactly trees as a concept broadly pro so the big give is a donation campaign which works to help out uk charities it is going from midday on the 22nd of april to midday on the 29th of april any donations made to trees for cities during that time will be doubled up you give 10 pounds trees for cities gets 20 pounds it's amazing the link is treesforcities.org forward slash big hyphen give do go and help Trees for Cities out. They work to help with oxygen. So we all need more of that. It's time for that part of the show where we take one of nature's magnificent creatures and we pit it against Roddy Shaw in a fight to the death. Now, today's animal has been submitted by two people on Instagram, Deadly Wise and Gutter Scrooge, Gutter Scrooge, who've both suggested the weasel. Now, the weasel is the smallest member of the mustelid family. In fact, it's the smallest member of the whole order, Carnivora. These look like tiny little shrunken stoats, about 25 centimetres long and weighing in at about 150 grams. They're found across most regions of North America, Europe and Asia in a variety of habitats and are fierce little hunters. Whilst their normal prey is voles, mice, and other small rodents, they will take prey 10 times their own weight when hunting rabbits, and in exceptional cases, have also been recording killing capercaillie, which is the world's largest grouse, and hares. They're lightning quick and kill their prey with bites to the occipital region of the skull or neck to dislocate the vertebrae. And then, for no reasons relating to this fight whatsoever, but just to mention it in case I never get to mention this again, uh, they're quite famed in folklore. In Macedonian and Greek culture, in some districts of Macedon, women who suffered from headaches after having washed their heads in water drawn overnight would assume that a weasel had previously used the water as a mirror, but they would refrain from mentioning the animal's name for fear that it would destroy their clothes. So sure, that makes avoid that in the fight. Logical sense. Similarly, a popular superstition in southern Greece had it that the weasel had previously been a bride who was transformed into a bitter animal, which would destroy the wedding dresses of other brides out of jealousy. Why do our Hellenic friends hate the weasel so? <laughs> but the weasel, in Ojibwe and Inuit culture, is viewed slightly differently. In Inuit mythology, the weasel is credited with both great wisdom and courage, and whenever a mythical Inuit hero wished to accomplish a valorous task, he would generally change himself into a least weasel. And then, finally, my favourite one, the Ojibwe believed that the weasel could kill the dreaded Wendigo by rushing up its anus. Wow, okay. So bearing all that in mind, Roddy Shaw, how many weasels are too many weasels? Well, couple questions straight out. Um, Am I a Wendigo? I certainly hope not, for your sake. (laughs) And you said the least weasel. Yes, so it's got multiple names, basically. It is what we know as the weasel, but in North America, it's often called the least weasel. Does North America have the most weasel? (laughs) Like, why? I'm not sure. I think I don't know if there... There must be other weasels elsewhere in the world, but it's known as... We just call it the weasel. You'd hope there's other weasels, because if you're just... If you're the only weasel... And you're being called the least weasel. There are... Yes. So there's like 
the Indonesian mountain weasel. Right, but it's not in America. Like, uh, why are they just oh, that's hating true. on it? <laughs> 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 why are they sending up the Wendigo's asshole, <laughs> calling it the least weasel? I don't understand this weasel hate. Yeah, actually, listed under the weasels are things like black-footed ferrets. They come under the class of weasels, apparently. It's just long tube. Stoat is on the list of weasels. Okay, okay. Well, I guess in that sense, they are the smallest yeah. and the least of the... Smallest member of the carnivore family. Oh, that's or c- order. Yeah, that's wild. They're tiny. Okay, very, very small. Now, I have to say, this is the first... Actually, this is the first one, bar like seeing a baboon at the zoo or whatever... Mm. This is the first one of these where I have history with a weasel. Right. And it is not a history of violence. It's not Wendigo history. No, no. God, no. What? I don't want to <laughs> Come announce home that on a an podcast. Evening. <laughs> it's been a long day at work. Yeah. Fetch the weasel. No. <laughs> no, I, was, I used to live in York and there was a, a field behind where I lived. Uh-huh. And I was crossing it one day back from work and there was a commotion of crows as yeah. i think you'll agree the term is yeah uh, and i was like oh what is this hey, hey there crow <laughs> what commotion is this <laughs> anyway i got up there and there was a baby weasel or what i thought at the time was a baby weasel now was probably quite an adult well it, it may have been what's often confused between people often think that weasels are baby stoats yeah because stoats are larger and then the weasel is just absolutely tiny so it could have been a full-grown weasel well i think i've i've seen weasels since this is the first time but it was a weasel and it was all and i took it home in tupperware and got wow rspca and that's cool all of that was taken to a little so i'm very reluctant to fight fight the weasel weasel. at the same time this is our podcast is the segment so unfortunately you can't lay down your swords now. <laughs> it's going down, Mr. Weasel. So, a weasel can take out a rabbit. Yeah. A rabbit, I have checked, is between one to two and a half kilos, mm-hmm. which uh, means that it's 90, if we're taking small rabbits, yeah. it's 90 rabbits to me. Yeah. If the- you listen to every single one of these fight podcasts... Like, literally just a fight segment, one after the other. Yeah. You'd probably be able to build up, like, my complete medical history. <laughs> You'd know how much I weighed, how tall I am, where I've lived, <laughs> what I've done for work, who I've encountered. Yeah. It's better than track and trace. <laughs> okay. The weasel, I will remind you, only weighs 150 grams and is about 25 centimetres long. So it's tiny. And you said it could take something 10 times its size. That's the rabbit. But in exceptional cases, they've gone even bigger and have been recorded killing hares and capercaillies, which is the world's largest grouse. That's insane. Oh, yeah. That's like a lion taking out a blue whale. <laughs> like, that's what we're talking about here. That they is... are tenacious. Like, all the mustelids are just like, you know, stoats and everything. They're just... Why do you think they're so they're angry? I don't think they're angry. I just think they... I think a great saying is like be more weasel it's just like attack life with the ferocity that a weasel or a stoat like attacks life goes after anything yeah um i'm definitely taking 10 yeah we're past there they're fast as well they're lightning quick i've seen them in there's a there's a place called the british wildlife center outside london and i've seen them there so 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 quick um definitely taking 10 definitely taking 20 25 i'm starting to worry mm-hmm. because the real fear is obviously if they get up my trouser leg mm. because 
Cost Wendigo. <laughs> <laughs> Wendigo, and in many ways my own weasel, <laughs> are at great risk there. So they're so quick. So it's almost like how many can I keep my eyes on? Oh, yeah, that's a good shout. If one kind of gets up there, mm. it's game over. You know, what I think when I think about weasels and how they move, the thing that comes to mind is air hockey pucks. Yeah. When it's just bouncing off everything, yeah. and you're trying to and you're trying to move your hands fast yeah. enough to deflect the air hockey puck from going yeah. in your goal, that's the movement that comes to my mind when I think weasel. So I'm doing this in a tap dancing lesson. Okay. Yeah, because that's keeping my feet going really quick. Yeah. And offensively, yeah. If I step on a weasel, it's that's it. It's, yeah. That's it for the weasel. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm doing a tap dancing lesson. Keep moving. Keep moving. Got that tempo, got that rhythm. Yeah. And 24, I'm feeling as 12 per foot. Not that I'm <laughs> dividing my... You Why know. don't you give us your shoe size? Yeah, well? yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, 12 or 13, depending on the brand. <laughs> um, but, yeah, 25 weasel. 25 weasel, I think. I think any more than that, and it's becoming so... 25 is even feisty, though. They're so quick. Yeah. All the... One of them just has to get up there, and I'm fully Wendigoed. And once I'm Wendigoed by a weasel, I'm on my way out. Maybe less. 15? They're so tenacious. Yeah. 15. 15. I th- I'm coming down from 25 because yeah. they're so quick. As soon as they start climbing, it's game over. Then, yeah, I, I desperately don't want to be Wendigoed <laughs> by a weasel. No, that's a Wendy no. <laughs> okay, so we've had a question here on Instagram from Ali Pomeroy. Ali has asked, I love the lack of context in this, which animal would you take to a board meeting? Now, I think we can... <laughs> I, I think we can decide what we're trying to get out of this. Like, why are we taking the animal to the board meeting? Is it because... It's a boring meeting and we just want some entertainment. Is it because we're going in there to try and... Is it intimidation? What What are we trying to get out of bringing this animal to the board meeting? I don't know, but I'll tell you this. This is the first question we've ever had where I've reached for a pen and paper. <laughs> <laughs> like, I feel like this is going to need... We're going to need to take notes, have a framework, understand what's happening. I love the vagary of it. It's so vague. But it's not in a, like... <laughs> Ali, don't feel but it's just so it's an open you know we're open. looking at a blank canvas yeah. and you've given us some oils we, we've got a board meeting we've got the animal kingdom and are we other, have to smush them together are, are the other people in the board meeting bringing animals Maybe bring your animal to work then. are the other people in are they animals no they're not animals is it like a Zootopia type no, board no, meeting no 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 we are this is me and you being called into a board meeting as, as we are, and as everybody else is, and we're just taking an animal. So what are we trying to get out of taking the animal to the board meeting? Are we employed at... <laughs> at, at the- miscellaneous company. <laughs> yeah. Inc. At Pomeroy Limited. <laughs> yeah. Maybe we're, maybe we're employed. Maybe we're trying to... We're just delivering <laughs> lunch. <laughs> we're just delivering lunch and we turn with up a with a peacock. giraffe. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think, or, or maybe we're trying to like pitch something. Okay. Maybe we're trying to, you know, maybe it's apprentice style. What have you heard about goats? <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> with Alan Sugar flanked by his two assistants. Okay, like, guys, I got to tell you about ducks. <laughs> <laughs> <I can't. laughs> 
<laughs> you know you're trying to sell bread. <laughs> Let me introduce, introduce you, you to your target audience. Yeah. Now I'm gonna pricey this. They don't have money. <laughs> but if we <laughs> if we market this right, bread's gonna fly off. You're the gonna shelves. have bread off your hands. Yeah. You wanna know the breast things in sliced bread? <laughs> Ducks. <laughs> The best thing that happened to bread since we sliced it was waterfowl. You're welcome. Questions. I like the apprentice. I like that. Okay. There, there's a, that. There's some kind of competition-y thing. Yeah. But it also is very clear, very, um, not stereotypical, but I guess, stereo- you know, like suits, boots. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Intense, yeah, yeah. formal. I think it's it's in a big office with a big table, you know people sort of the the ceos and people like yeah, that around yeah. it that's the vibe we're, okay. we're dealing with okay the other thing is at the moment for you and i yeah we're not at executive level no right no. so we're not a regular at the board meeting no. okay <laughs> that's a very fair <laughs> comment <laughs> and so we've been called in now why would we be called into a board meeting there's either surely going to be a good scenario yeah. and a bad scenario. Mm. Okay. So, right. I think that influence, it's like, why am I at the board meeting? Are you Therefore, getting a promotion? Are you getting fired? Exactly. Okay. So if I'm getting fired, yeah. I want to bring in one of two types of animal. Okay. Something very scary. Yep. Yeah, that's where I went. Or something very cool. So that they're... So it's like, hey, look, I know I've lost us millions, but have you heard about geckos? <laughs> like, <laughs> like, what would I bring them to win them? Well, what about something like so cripplingly adorable that they yeah. just can't let you go? Because you're like, how am I going to feed the red panda that's cuddled upon my lap? Sympathy. Approach. You know, go for that, and they're like, ah. Oh. Yeah, if you fire me, I won't be a homeless person with a dog. I will just be unemployed with a red panda. <laughs> All of these Russian dwarf hamsters. What, what are they going to do? A sack of hamsters. <laughs> Bring it to a board meeting and dump it on the table. Look, Karen. Scary-wise, I think turning up with, like, a massive snake. Well, no, maybe not the massive ones, because they a venomous snake. Yep. You I would- went... A slightly different way. Yeah. And I know I put scary on the table. And since then, what I've actually invented in my head is total chaos. Because <laughs> I went a whole tuna live, but no water. <laughs> like just, just me, flapping. Just, like how disorientating would a 1,000 pound fish be of solid muscle? Yeah. Just go in for it, slap it like like Magikarp on steroids. <laughs> so you know, right? So you know this is coming. You've had word from the other people in the office that they're going to fire you. Yeah. They sit you down. They're like, Roddy, we've got some. <laughs> Roddy, we've got some bad news to tell you. And you're like, Yes, but before we get to that, and you just like pull up a massive. Can I just introduce you? I just unleash it into yeah. the boardroom. Yeah. And they're so distracted. I mean, if nothing else, it knocks the paperwork down for like another month. You know, I get the next paycheck and then I can think what the actual... I just keep bringing in very large fish every time they try and fire me just to derail the situation. The marlin, the barracuda. Yeah, exactly. A handful of trout. Just, you know, 
I think a very big, I think, because also with a lot of these, I'm actually sticking with it. I know I put, you're welcome to do other scenarios yeah. and what have you, but so many of these situations, be it with the fights or anything, it's quite rare that we can really use fish. That's true. That is true. Yeah, yeah. Like, and of all of them, you've gone for a tuna. Who, <laughs> who would we put in this? Who would we put in that? I'm saying this is actually, what Ali's given us is the perfect scenario where a fish out of water could literally play yeah. into our hand and also if it's good news if they're like roddy great news <laughs> it's all gone well i'm gonna be like listen guys fantastic just to kick things up a gear here's some tequila i've got <laughs> i've got a marlin the tuna bakes are on me <laughs> yeah let's go not to eat the tuna just i've never, who's ever seen a whole tuna in a boardroom <laughs> if i was a ceo and i promoted someone and they suddenly turned up with a tuna i'd have so many how did they get the tuna in the building without it causing chaos because in my mind it's the moment it's absolutely fine yeah like i'm not in a rush to get it there it's as soon as you unleash it. as soon as it's in like a magic tuna bag yeah i take it out of that it hits the table and then it's just fucking chaos <laughs> it would, they're so big they're huge it would just be bouncing off the wall yeah and they're solid solid <laughs> muscle, muscle. And also, if it wasn't like a skyscraper, you street level, you might look up and just be like, is there a tuna? Maybe it was being filmed for The Apprentice. Yeah, exactly. Like when they have to pitch whatever is, I mean, it's not Clive anymore. It's some you know, the little business things and they tear their business plans to shreds. And yeah. it's like, look, I hear what you're saying, scary, bald businessman. However, boom, live tuna. It just, it should just like, instead of you unleashing it, you should just look up. Push a button under and like, the table. And like point, and it's just there. Like like Tom Cruise on the ceiling, Mission Impossible Duct style. Duct tape to the ceiling, <laughs> and just, just steadily like falls the, the moment that you go, yeah, but point the, upwards. Yeah. And the last bit of duct tape snaps. And, a whole... and then as soon as it hits the table, it's just thrashing. There you go, Ali. Yeah. I hope that's the answer you were looking for. <laughs> it wasn't the answer we thought was in us, but it's the answer that came out. Much like the tuna itself in the magic bag. Thank you for listening to today's episode, which may have included, in no particular order, gorillas fighting sharks, hedgehogs which have learnt to skydive, or maybe that thing we found out about seals which can juggle. <laughs> you have to peel back the curtain as we record these outros. We've got no idea what you've listened to because we basically get together of a weekend and record all of it in one go, edit it, then mix and match the episodes. Um, so we've got no idea what you've listened to, but we hope you enjoyed it. It is a really nice sunny day outside at the time of recording, and we have opted for the good of our fair listeners to lock ourselves in a small room, <laughs> gazing out at the sunshine, and discuss whatever it may be. But thank you all very much for listening and for sharing. We're still seeing the podcast grow, and we're really, really enjoying it. But I'm afraid it's time for us to be very awkwardly British. Um, and announced that we have set up something that if you feel so inclined you can donate a little bit of money to us listen to the change in our voices <laughs> as we awkwardly navigate the world of donations yes jack and i do love meeting up to do this we think that meeting up to do this adds something to the show and we really enjoy meeting up to record this for you and mm. as part of all of that meeting up i keep mentioning there are a lot of train fares involved <laughs> yeah. so if you would like to help out we would absolutely love it if you could go to www 
buymeacoffee.com forward slash how many geese, all one word. Um, we'll also put a link to that at the end of the description on the episode. Just chuck us anything you've got. But if you don't have anything, do not worry. We're not going to make this, you know, exclusive or anything like that. And it will just help literally support the costs of doing this in our spare time. That's the deal. Do you like it? Yes. Yeah. Can you help out? Great. If you can't, no worries. We're going to keep doing it. So thank you everyone very much for listening to whatever you may have just listened to. See you next time. Hooray. Bye.